This morning, we are wrapping up our sermon series, Church Social. And if you've missed any of the sermons in this series and you want to go back and listen to them, you can head over to our website where you'll find the full archive. Today, the topic that's going to round out this series is an easy one, politics. Of course, I'm kidding. There's nothing easy about politics and the church. But today we're going to dive into this topic because it's an important one for us, not only because we have a presidential election only a few weeks away, but because in the church, there's often a lot of confusion about where we find the intersection of our faith and our politics. But before we dive right in today, I want us to take a look at scripture to understand how it is that our faith may call us to be involved in political systems in our world. And so our scripture reading this morning is coming from a letter in the New Testament called Colossians. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. And when we finish reading, if you will join me in affirming this reading, I'll say this is the word of God for the people of God, and you'll join in saying thanks be to God. Let us now hear these words of God for us today. So live in Christ Jesus the Lord in the same way you received him. Be rooted and built up in him. Be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. See to it that nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception, which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts rather than Christ. All the fullness of deity lives in Christ's body, and you have been filled by him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This letter that we just read was written to a church in the region of Colossae. This church was a fledgling Christian community And what we understand from other parts of the letter is that this community had been taught some outside philosophies that were causing a lot of confusion. Now, we don't know exactly what the philosophies were, but what we can gather from the text of the letter is that there were those coming into the church telling people that the mind and the body are separate. We call this dualism. They were teaching that the mind is the higher power, that that the redemption of the soul, the spirit, is the greatest thing to focus our faith life on, and that the body is sinful and to be tamed. What people were being taught is that they should practice extreme fasting. They should become ascetics. They should control their body in such a way that they may have visions of angels. Now, all of this might sound very strange to us today, but the fundamental concept that was breaking into this community and causing division is not so foreign to us. You see, what the people were practicing, what lay at the root of this philosophy was that it doesn't matter what happens on earth. It only matters what happens in the spiritual realm. And so people were being taught that Jesus came to save our souls, but that our bodies didn't matter. And the writer, the one who is addressing the Colossian community, tells us that that simply is not the case. That though we worship a Jesus who is filled with the power of the cosmos, we also worship a Jesus who is the Christ made flesh embodied 
here on earth. Christ who lived our life and died our death that we might be saved. And the word that the writer is giving to this community and gives to us today is that we must be people who embody our faith. We can't just be people who sit back and say that we focus on things to come. We have to be living out our faith here and now within our body and within our world. This is important for us to remember as we as a church think about whether there's any relationship between what we do as people of faith, as disciples of Jesus Christ, and what happens in political systems in our world at large. Because you see, if we worship Jesus, who was embodied, who lived life and interacted with the world around him, then we as his followers have to be people who embody faith and interact with the world around us. And so as United Methodist, we have prayerfully and thoughtfully considered what it means to be in relationship with the political community. Now, before we go much further, I think we should probably define a couple terms that can be confusing and can lead to conflict in these kinds of discussions. The first thing that's important to note is that the word political and political community is defined in the broadest sense of the word. That is to say that the Methodist Church is a global church. And when we talk about politics, we're talking broadly about systems that govern how people interact. We're not talking about particular systems that are maybe US centric or two party democracies. We're talking about politics all over the world. So when you hear the word political community, just remember that it goes beyond what we're familiar with. It goes to political systems all over the world. The second thing to remember is that when we talk about politics and the church, we're not talking about partisan politics. Certainly in the U.S. we have a two-party system and partisan politics is always before us. But in the church, I've always heard it said that while Jesus is political, he's not partisan. Or maybe you've heard it said that Jesus is not a Democrat or Republican. And this is certainly true for United Methodists because we can be a denomination that houses George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton. Because our concern with politics is not driven by a party affiliation, but by how our faith informs our response to issues that face our world. And so today, when we talk about the political community, we're not talking about the U.S. political community. We're talking more broadly. And we're not talking about endorsement of a particular party or person. We're talking about how governing systems in our country and in countries around the world interact with what we believe as people of faith and how our faith calls us to embody our beliefs and speak to these systems. So what is it that Methodists believe about the political community? Well, first we teach just what we heard in the scripture today, that our primary allegiance as Christians, as citizens of two kingdoms, heaven and earth, is to God. Our allegiance is to God first. And though God is first, we do understand that government is a principal vehicle for ordering society. And so it's necessary. The second thing we teach is that the strength of political systems depends upon the full and willing participation of its citizens. 
And the third thing we teach is that we support the separation of church and state, but we believe this separation does allow interaction. I want to break these down a little bit further and also to say that this section on political community goes much broader than these three topics we're going to focus on today. So I encourage you to go and read it. It touches on things uh, like our criminal justice system, military service, how we respond to war and peace. And so there's a broader conversation as a part of this. But today I want us to mostly focus on these three foundational concepts, our primary allegiance to God, participation as responsible citizens, and then the interaction between church and state. So the separation of church and state is probably something you have heard discussed before in church. It's, it's a theory that's referenced often, but sometimes misquoted and misunderstood. You see, in our culture, we often hear that church and state are separate, meaning that they should stay completely removed from one another. Oftentimes in the church, part of the reason we avoid talking about politics is we feel like it's wrong or against the law to engage issues in our governing systems. And so we'll say things like, because we're a tax-exempt organization, we're not allowed to talk about politics. And while part of that is true, because we are tax-exempt, we are not allowed to endorse a political figure or to become a vehicle for endorsing partisan politics. We are allowed to talk about issues that face our society. And so when we speak of the separation of church and state, what we're really reflecting on is a doctrine that came to be in our country very early as our government was forming. The separation of church and state means that we do not endorse a state-run church and we do not endorse a church-run state. Instead, we believe that these two institutions should remain separate and unique. But it also means that there are occasions where it is appropriate when the correct boundaries are drawn for these two institutions to speak to one another about issues that impact both separately. This is what was talked about by Roger Williams, who was an early Baptist uh, thinker and writer in America, and Thomas Jefferson, because what they were concerned about is that as the United States was forming in its fledgling years, they didn't want to have a state church like they had seen in England. You may know that the Church of England is a state-run church and that the head of that church is actually the Queen of England. And they decided early on that this didn't reflect what they understood about who God was and who people of faith were called to be and about what they believed about the governing system that was emerging in this American democracy. And so we see the emergence of the idea of the separation of church and state. And yet sometimes we overemphasize this and we'll say things like, because the church and state are called to be separate, we can have nothing to do with politics. Or because we are people of faith, we only focus on issues of the kingdom that is outside of this world and we can't get down into the nitty gritty of what's happening here and now. But as we saw in the letter to the Colossians, in fact, Jesus is the example that tells us that we must live an embodied faith. And at times, our faith will call us to interact with political systems. If you look at scripture, you can see this not only in the life of Jesus, who was imprisoned by a government and ex executed as a prisoner of state. You can see it in Paul's life as he was imprisoned. 
And you can see it, especially in the book of First and Second Kings, as people wrestled with what it meant to want to be governed by someone outside of God, to ask to have a government in place to help them function as a community. Historically, in the Methodist Church, we have been involved in the politics of the United States. A good example of this is the work that was started by the United Methodist Women around temperance. If you don't know, temperance uh, was a movement in the U.S. to outlaw the consumption of alcohol. And what happened was that United Methodist Women, as they were serving women and children in the community, were realizing that alcohol use in their local church communities and abuse and addiction was causing family systems to break apart. It was causing people to be abusive towards one another. It was causing children to be neglected. And as they prayerfully discerned what they may be called to do, they decided that the most most faithful response would be to lobby the government to put laws in place that would ban the sale of alcohol. And so we see in history the United Methodist women being a pushing force for the temperance movement in the United States. This isn't the only way we see interaction between Methodist and the government. In fact, the United Methodist Church actually has a general board that's primary responsibility is to be an advocate, to be a voice speaking about Methodist concerns to the government. This general board is called the General Board of Church and Society. And one of their offices actually sits on Capitol Hill. It's called the Methodist Building. And it is the only building on Capitol Hill that is non-governmental. This building for Methodists stands as a witness that we are to speak to the state about issues that concern us as people of faith. And the General Board of Church and Society educates Methodists about how we can thoughtfully reflect and have discussion around issues that are facing the church and facing the world. By endorsing a separation of church and state, we remain clear that our primary allegiance is to God. But we also remain clear that as people who follow an embodied Christ and practice an embodied faith, we are called to speak into systems in our world so that we might live into God's vision for justice. This interaction can be seen as connected to our belief that we have a responsibility to be full and willing citizens in our governments. This is the second rule we talked about today. And our responsibility as citizens is informed by who we believe we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier that we have to be careful about how we understand politics. And one thing I do want to remind us of as we're thinking through all of these things together is that when we talk about how we are responsible citizens, especially for those this morning listening in a U.S.-centric context, when we talk about how to be responsible citizens, sometimes the words that we reference do not come out of the context of our experience. In other words, when we read scripture or when we read the words of John Wesley, sometimes we will quote things that while they don't speak directly to American democracy, they do have um, wisdom for us as people who live in an American democracy. 
And one of the places we see that, especially as it relates to how to be good citizens, is a meme that goes around the internet, uh, I think this time every year, whenever election season is upon us. And it's actually a quote uh, from a letter that John Wesley wrote to his societies, his small group meetings of people across England. And while I'm not familiar with the exact uh, topic of voting in that day in England, what Wesley says to his societies is this. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, and to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. As you can imagine, John Wesley writing this in 1774 was not familiar with our current system of government. But as we hear those words, I imagine that all of us in this context can see how they are still applicable. That we should vote and we should not accept fee or reward for that vote. That we should not speak evil of the person that we vote against and that we should take care that we don't sharpen our spirits against those who vote differently than us. This advice for John Wesley did not come because he was some political buff or because he spent a lot of his ministry advocating or participating in his government at that time. But what we do know of John Wesley is that because he was a pietist, because he believed that the transformation of our heart was critically important for our faith, he was led to act. You see, Wesley believed that once God came into your heart and transformed you by God's grace, you would begin to live in a different way. And part of living in a different way meant relating to people in a different way, meant participating in the world and in our communities in a different way. And you could see how our responsibility as citizens derives from that primary belief that when God changes your heart, your whole life changes. And so Wesley, in writing to the societies, wanted to remind them that they were people who first and foremost had been changed by the grace of God. And so when they participated as citizens, responsibly in the voting, that they would reflect what they had learned about their faith. Wesley was not so much concerned about the outcome of whatever that election was, but that believers, followers of the Methodist movement, reflected what they knew to be true about God and their call as disciples. And so we, here now in the United States in 2020, hear these words of John Wesley and we remember that whenever we participate in our responsibilities as citizens of this country, whenever we go to vote, which we believe we should do, we are informed both in our actions and in our words by the grace of God that has transformed our lives. Now this brings us back to the first and perhaps the foremost instruction we have about how faith and politics interacts. And that is that above anything else, we hold an allegiance to God. Politics is definitely a messy endeavor. 
But because we believe that our first allegiance is to God, we as people of faith can have the strength and courage to enter into this system, trusting that if we are prayerful and that if we turn our focus to God, we will be guided in a way that brings about peace and justice in our governments and in our country. To say that we have allegiance to God first helps direct us in the way that we exercise our political freedom that we have. It helps us understand that God is calling us as citizens not so much to support one person, but to look at all of the issues that face the world, all the issues we've been talking about in this sermon series on the social principles to prayerfully consider where God's vision of justice is in each of these issues, and then to vote according to how we feel God is leading us. As people of faith, we actually don't avoid politics, no matter what you've heard before, because we believe that our faith is best lived out here and now, that we are the most faithful when we embody all that we believe. And that means that sometimes we do have to enter the political arena. Sometimes we do have to enter and exercise the power that we are given, not only by our government, but primarily by the grace of God who has redeemed us. And so for this reason, as people of faith, we are called to speak out against systems that oppress. We are called to speak out when people are starving, when people are denied basic rights, when people are not having their voice heard in free elections. And if you think about this globally, this is so important. And this is why you see Methodist missionaries around the world advocating for people to have access to the right to vote. Now, this is not always easy work. And even in recent history, there are stories of missionaries serving in Southeast Asia who have been imprisoned because they are working to try to create more fair elections, to create a fuller citizenship for those Christians and others living in those countries. And yet we know that those actions, even though they are not always met with kindness by certain governments, are actions that come out of people's faith and allegiance to God and belief that God created us all in God's image. And God has given us certain basic human rights. So this morning, I hope if you hear nothing else, I hope that you will hear that our faith does call us to consider politics. That we see throughout scripture where faith and politics interact. And while it's not always easy, we have the assurance that if we focus our allegiance first and foremost on God, we will find a way to create a more just path in this world. I also hope that you will hear the message that comes from Colossians that we can't, as people of faith, separate what happens in our world with what we do in our spiritual life. We can't pray in the morning and walk out the door and act in a way that is against what we have been taught through the Bible and through the life of Jesus Christ. We have to be people who embody all that we see and believe in scripture, all that we hear from God in our prayer lives. We have to be people who are connecting our faith lives with our action in the world. I hope that 
this sermon series, Church Social, has been informative to you. I hope that Pastor Eric and I have brought you at least some places for further thought and discussion. I hope that after you hear the sermons on Sunday mornings, you're going to lunch with your family or you're calling a friend and you're talking about different things that are brought up. The purpose of our Methodist social principles is to give a faithful witness, but it's also to encourage us to be engaged in talking about how God is present and moving now. And so even though this is our last sermon in this series, I hope that you will continue this work and think about ways that God may be calling you, ways that God may be calling you today, here, and now into a new, fuller way of being. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the baptism, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you brought us salvation, not just of our spirits, but of our body. God, you remind us in the book of Colossians, because we are baptized with Christ, we die with Christ, and we will be resurrected with Christ. In the scripture that we have heard this morning, you have reminded us that we are to be rooted in you, built in you, that we might live out our faith in this world. God, as we go from this time, help us be prayerful about where you are calling us to live out our faith in all places in our lives, and especially to live out our faith in politics that we might understand how by through allegiance to you, through being responsible citizens, through keeping the church separate but interactive with the state, we might best represent what we believe in our faith lives and we may be workers in your kingdom seeking a vision for your justice to come to our world and to our government. God, today we pray for all of the leaders in our government. We pray for our country and for the elections which are ahead. God, may we all interact in this season of politics in a way that is informed first and foremost by who we are as people redeemed by your grace. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ who came to earth, who lived this life, that we might be redeemed. Amen.